Ephesians chapter 4 is where I want you to open this morning, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, last Sunday, we began to learn what the Bible teaches about bitterness. Namely, that Scripture presents bitterness first as an experience and then as a response, first as something that happens to us, and then something that arises within us. Biblically speaking, the word bitter means to be angry, chafed, and discontent. It refers to a sharp, pungent sense of taste or smell. Just hearing the word bitter brings certain images to our minds. We learned that Scripture reveals two major categories of bitterness. The first explains the bitterness of hard life experiences. Sometimes life is bitter. While the second exposes bitter responses to these hard life experiences and the wrongs committed against us by fellow sinners. Bitterness is sometimes something that arises from our hearts. Last Sunday, we focused on the reality of bitter-tasting experiences in this fallen and broken world. We peered into a biblical case study looking at the life of a woman named Naomi, who was once a very pleasant woman, but whose God-ordained bitter-tasting afflictions changed her into becoming a bitter woman. Today, our focus is on the second category of bitterness. That is, the response of bitterness that arises from our hearts. Biblically speaking, the heart is the control center of the human being. The heart is the always active, ever-worshipping, always wanting something control center of our lives. And so when the Bible speaks of the heart, that's what it's speaking of. Speaking of that part of us that engages with God. And then that engagement with God has a horizontal engagement with one another. So when there's bitterness in our hearts, there's something going on with God. Okay, that's just a very fundamental thought to consider. We are driven by what we want. And that's something that you hear from me regularly. 
And the reason for that is because it took me quite a number of years in my Christian life to come to that understanding. But coming to that understanding really revolutionizes your understanding of sanctification and moves you forward in your progress in Christ. We are driven by what we want. Therefore, when something or someone gets in the way of our desires, we are tempted to respond in anger. And if this anger lingers, if it simmers in the crock pot long enough, then we become bitter. In his excellent book, Overcoming Bitterness, Steve Byers writes this, quote, people don't become sinfully bitter when everything is going their way. Sinful bitterness occurs when we respond improperly to the hurts, frustrations, or disappointments of life. It can be defined as the seething and unresolved anger rooted in unbelief because the pains and disappointments of life were not processed through the lens of God's eternal plan and purposes. So to confront this second category of bitterness, the bitter responses that come from our hearts, we're going to camp out here in Ephesians 4 and let the Holy Spirit teach us. He's going to warn us against bitter responses but he's also going to give us a remedy. So there are two exhortations that God wants you to heed this morning. Number one, pay attention to biblical warnings. And there were biblical warnings last Sunday morning in the life journey of Naomi, and if you missed that part one, you should go back at some point and listen to that to get a full, more well-rounded understanding of bitterness. You can listen to it on the website or at the sermon audio site. But we need to pay attention to biblical warnings. And there are numerous warnings in the scripture that I just read to you. But let's get a little bit of the context here before we look at some specific warnings that the Spirit of God recorded for us. The context of these warnings is the new life that we have in Christ. It's the Apostle Paul calling us to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. So in Christ, you are a new person. You have a new life. In Christ, you are dead to sin and alive to God. And that is because the Spirit of God has caused you to be born again by the power of the life-giving gospel. And so this new life within us that comes to us by the Holy Spirit through the gospel begins a new manifestation of life in us. That's what he's talking about in 4.1, that you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, we have been called in Christ, and therefore we are now to walk or live in a way that is in accordance with that calling. This means that we have a new life goal. Verse 13 talks about how God is working in us to bring us to mature manhood. So the new life goal that we have is to become a mature Christian. And what does a mature Christian look like? Well, it looks like Christ. That's what he says, the fullness of Christ, or that we grow up in every way into him, verse 15, who is the head into Christ. That is the calling of God upon us through the gospel. Salvation then means transformation. Look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. In other words, he reminds them a little bit of what life was like for them before they were saved. They were walking as unbelievers walk. They were futile in their minds. They were darkened in their understanding. And when I say they, they, I'm talking about we. Everyone here who is a believer, we were before we knew Christ alienated from the life of God because of the hardness of our heart. We were callous, verse 19. We were giving ourselves over to sin. But then he says in verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. In other words, salvation means 
Transformation has begun at the core level of who we are. We've not added something to our lives in getting saved. We have not added Jesus into the mix of who we already were. No, in salvation, God begins a brand new work in us, causing us to be born again. And then the rest of our Christian lives is the progressive outworking of who we already are in Christ. We are, you could say, becoming who we already are. That requires effort on our part. Verse 22, put off your old self. In other words, put off the old man. Put off who you were before you came to Christ. And what you were and what I was before Christ was motivated by, verse 22, deceitful desires. We were doing the things we were doing because we were wanting the things we were wanting. We were thinking the things we were thinking because we wanted the things we wanted. We are desire factories. And so we were driven by these desires. And now we're supposed to be driven by new desires. Not new desires that we create, but new desires that God recreates in us through Christ through the life of God within us. We also are supposed to be renewed in our mind. You can see that in verse 23, renewed in the spirit of your minds. So we need to learn to think biblically. No matter how old we were, when we came to Christ, we came with all kinds of baggage, ways of thinking. And we've got to see those things cleaned out, and we need to think biblically. So there's things to put off. But then he says in verse 24, put on the new self, which is created in the likeness of God. So you're not just putting something off, but you're putting something on. You're not just saying, well, I don't like the way my life is going. I don't like the choices I'm making, so I'm just going to stop. You have to also then start something. You have to replace. Otherwise, that vacuum is just going to be filled in with another new flavor of sin. Put off lying, he says in verse 25. Speak the truth. Why? Because we are interconnected with one another. And when we lie to one another, we hurt our relationships and we hurt the bond of Christ. That's the big context of two verses I want to start looking at. 26 and 27. Because in these two verses, the apostle teaches us about anger in two very important ways. Number one, righteous anger quickly becomes unrighteous when you linger there. Notice what he says. Be angry. That's a command, actually, in the original language. So you might be saying, well, I didn't know there was such a thing as righteous anger. I've never seen that in my life. I've only ever seen the sinful expressions of anger. Well, join the club. But Scripture does command us to be angry right here in verse 26. And the gospel accounts inform us that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was angry on more than one occasion, but he never sinned. So there is such a thing as righteous anger. But as I shared with you last week through my own personal testimony, the line between righteous and unrighteous anger is incredibly thin. It's so easy to cross over. It's it's natural for us to be righteously angry about an injustice, something that grieves God, and then so, so quickly to cross the line and make it about us. Righteous anger becomes unrighteous anger so quickly. Well, let me think for a minute with you about righteous anger. Okay? 
10 years ago, um, I worked through a little study on anger with a couple guys in, in our church, and, and by doing so, we were helping each other. We were counseling one another with the word of God. And we used a study called Uprooting Anger by biblical counselor Robert Jones. And he does such a good job explaining three distinguishing marks of righteous anger. So for anger to be righteous, all three must be true. First, righteous anger reacts against actual sin. It reacts against actual sin. In other words, it arises from an accurate understanding of what is evil. It reacts to sin, defined biblically. It reacts to violations of God's word. In other words, it does not result merely when you are inconvenienced or someone offends your personal preference. That's not righteous anger. Righteous anger has to do with what is clearly sin defined in the scriptures. Not because you just did something that annoys me or I did something that annoys you. Secondly, righteous anger focuses on God and his kingdom, not on me and my kingdom on God's rights, on God's concerns, not on my rights and my concerns. So in Scripture, what we see is that God-centered motives, not self-centered motives, drive righteous anger. Righteous anger focuses on how people offend God and His name, not me and my name. It terminates on God righteous anger. That's where it stops, not on me. So, in other words, we have to have an accurate view of sin and of God in order to actually practice righteous anger and then stop there. It primarily has to do with offending God, not offending me and not offending you. Thirdly, righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and then expresses itself in godly ways. And here is where we most often just so quickly just fly over the line. Righteous anger remains self-controlled. It keeps its head. It doesn't curse and scream and rage and fly off the handle nor does it spiral downward into self-pity and despair. It doesn't ignore people. It does not snub people or withdraw from people. Sinful anger does not give people, or sinful anger does give people the silent treatment. Righteous anger does not. Sinful anger is a means to control the people in your life. We often use anger in, in, in all of its forms, from mild on the spectrum to severe, to control and manipulate people in our life. And it becomes a pattern. Because if we can get people to be afraid of us, then guess what? They're going to tiptoe around us and not do the things that might offend us because they're afraid of our rage or our silence and cutting them off from our life, canceling them, to use today's word. But even when your anger is righteous, Paul says, you cannot linger there. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's a way of saying, deal with it immediately. Don't sleep on it. Don't let days go by. Don't let weeks go by. Don't let years go by. Deal with it. Work through interpersonal conflicts as soon as possible. Why is that? Well, that leads us to the second understanding about anger, and that is lingering anger 
gives the devil the advantage and the opportunity to destroy. Look what Paul says. And give no opportunity to the devil. The devil is, is the destroyer. Jesus referred to him that way in the Gospel of John. He's like Gollum. He's a murderer. That's what he is. And he murders at various levels. Not just physically. Murders, destroys relationships. Destroys, corrupts our view of God and his goodness, as we saw in Naomi last week. Satan takes advantage of our desires. He exploits them. Because when we don't get what we want, we often become angry. And then if we linger there, then that anger becomes bitterness. Uh, Look with me at another Old Testament case study. Turn to the right, uh, Hebrews 12. You're thinking, why am I turning to the right if I'm going to the Old Testament? Well, we are going to the right because we have a really strong warning about a bitter man in the Old Testament. His name is Esau. And Hebrews 12 might very well be the strongest warning in Scripture against bitterness. Look at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. If you're new to the Bible, let me just tell you who Esau is. Esau is the twin brother of Jacob who started fighting with his brother while they were in the womb. His parents learned that they were expecting twins and that those twins would result in being the heads of nations who would always be at each other's throats. Well, Esau was the kind of guy who lived for the moment. Very impulsive. Give me what I want and give it to me now. Jacob also had deceitful desires, but he had a longer plan. He had, a, he had an end game in mind that he was always working toward. Well, in Genesis 25, we are introduced to Esau as an adult. He returns from a long day of hunting, because that's what he loved to do. And when he walks through the front door, he smells this amazing stew that his brother is cooking. And he says, give me some of that red stuff. I'm starving to death. Jacob, being the sly little devil that he is, he says, sell me your birthright. Sell me all the rights that come along with you being the firstborn. And I'll give you some. And so he did. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew and some bread. And he lived to bitterly regret it. Two chapters later, with the help of his manipulative mother, Jacob then deceives his father into thinking that he is Esau. She ties the skins of of goats on his arms and on the back of his neck so that when uh, nearly blind Isaac feels him, he he says, well, you don't smell like Esau, but, but you feel like him. And so he blesses Jacob. When Esau finds out, he is exceedingly angry. And he weeps bitterly, it says. 
And then he says this in Genesis 27, 36. Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Now, question. Did Esau, did Jacob take away Esau's birthright? No, Esau sold it to him for a bowl of soup. But in his bitterness, Esau's heart is so filled with bitterness, he is starting to interpret the past differently. He is conflating events, and he is exaggerating the wrongs that, are, that have been committed against him. And how often is that what takes place in our lives when we dwell for so long on things that have happened in our lives? All of a sudden, our stories become just worse and worse and worse, right? And I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me, I am not saying that there have not been some horrendously wicked things that we have experienced in our past, either things we brought upon ourselves or that which others brought upon us. But I will say this, that if you live in Esau's world and you let your heart be filled with bitterness, you will begin to see the past differently. You will conflate events like he did. You will exaggerate the wrongs that people have committed against you because that is all you can see. Jacob stole the blessing. He did. But he did not steal Esau's birthright. Esau impulsively sold it to his brother because he was hungry. And so when the reality of his decision and his brother's deception settle in, Esau responds in anger. And Genesis 27, 41 says this, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. See where his, his bitterness is taking him? He's starting to plot revenge. He basically says, when dad is dead, I will get even. I was a hospice chaplain for several years in my early days in pastoral ministry. and There were several times in which I officiated the funerals of people that I only met for maybe a few days or a week as I kind of walked their their loved one to the end spiritually. And there were times in these funerals, these gatherings, where you could have cut the tension in the room with a knife. And you could see the hatred in people's faces for each other. And you could imagine this kind of scenario happening. Once this funeral is over and dad's in the ground with mom, you'll never see me again. We will never have anything to do with each other again. Bitterness, so filling the heart that he plots his revenge. Lingering anger in Esau's heart was ready to turn him into a murderer. The same thing can happen to us. Maybe not into a, a physical murderer, the taking of someone's physical life, but by destroying their spirit through harsh words or through cutting them off from our lives, giving them the silent treatment. It's murder. One is loud and one is silent. I 
How often does bitterness in our hearts show itself through our words? In fact, nothing reveals bitterness of the heart more than the words that come out of our mouths. Nothing. And that's a biblical concept. Our hearts are like fountains, and this is the spout. Jesus taught it in Mark 7. James teaches it in chapter 3. Out of the fountain of our heart come the words that are in sync with the water. So if our water is like the water of Exodus 15, and it's bitter, that's what's going to come out. So what we need is we need a branch to be thrown into the water of our hearts to purify it, to cleanse it, to make it sweet. That branch is Christ. He's the only one who can do that for us. To change us from the inside out. And you see this connection in Ephesians 4, verse 29. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. And then in verse 31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Do you know what Paul is doing here? Paul is being a really, really good counselor. You know what a really, really good counselor does? They work backwards. They're always working backwards. Always working backwards from the outward manifestation of sin, backwards to its source, which is the heart. What's going on in the heart? So in my early days in biblical counseling, which is well over 30 years ago, I would sometimes run into counselors who, who had a very shallow understanding of the way the human heart works. If you're doing wrong, then just stop it and start doing right. Not going beyond that to asking the why questions. Why do you want what you want? What do you think your heart wanted when you went after that? Because you're not going to change if you don't begin to understand how your heart works. That's how, why we looked at how bitterness operates last Sunday, how it operates in the heart. Because if all you do is replace a bad behavior with a good behavior, you know what you've become? A Pharisee. And you might look really nice on the outside, and you might be able to help a certain number of people who like that system of change. But if you really want to see people change authentically from the inside out, you have to start asking yourself the why question and the what question. Why am I so angry right now? What do I want so badly that because I'm not getting it, I'm willing to murder someone in my heart to get it? What does my idolatrous heart crave right now? And, and that's where the word of God helps us. Because who can know our hearts? You know, the psalmist asked. And our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And, and, and so we pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. We can see the outward things that we're doing wrong, actions and words and attitudes. But what we need God's intervention for is to understand why. What is going on in my heart 
that I got so angry because I lost that. Or I couldn't get that. Or she said that. And I just wanted to get even. See where this is going? So he says in verse 29, replace your speech, okay? But then he gets deeper as you go down through the passage to the heart issues in 31. Because if you don't deal with 31, you're never going to make progress in 29. Does that make sense? If you want to sanctify your speech, as verse 29 says, then you better start looking into your heart and saying, what am I angry about? Why am I bitter? So bitter that out of my mouth comes things like wrath and anger and clamor. Clamor, isn't that an interesting word? It means a loud shout. Just the word itself sounds clamor. You know, it's just, I love those kinds of words that sound what they mean. And all wickedness, verse 31. Put away all wickedness. Bitterness in our hearts is always the source of bitter words. And so you can't change yourself from the outside in. Only the Holy Spirit can change you from the inside out. So what's going on in your heart that you're angry about, that you're bitter about? Why are you so tempted to slander people who have hurt you? So pay attention to the, to the warnings. Secondly, apply the biblical remedy. I've already touched on this a little bit, but let me just kind of fly through these two verses. There's another sermon right in these two verses, so we'll see what happens. Because <laughs> we can also look bitter at bitterness this way. Um, life is all about relationships. Would you agree with that? Life is all about relationships. We were created to have a relationship with God, and then there's all kinds of people in our lives that we have relationships with. So life is all about relationships, and bitterness affects those relationships. We saw that last week with Naomi, didn't we? And in my testimony to you, how bitterness affected my relationship with God. But here in Ephesians, the apostle shows us how bitterness impacts our relationships with others. So bitterness has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension. It's always first vertical. There's always something going on in our heart between us and God. But then there are horizontal dimensions to this. And so Paul gives two directives. Number one, put away bitterness and all its unsavory relatives. Now, I already talked about this, but bitterness gives birth to a whole family of sin. It, it's like my extended family and yours. There, there are relatives that we like to pretend don't belong to us. You can laugh. It's true. You know it. You know it. There are bizarre second and third cousins that we hope change their last name at some point. I mean, it's just, just the way it is, you know. And bitterness is like that. Bitterness gives birth to all kinds of weird relatives. And they're listed there. Wrath, anger, clamor, slander. And all those words mean something. Wrath is rage an outburst of passion. Anger is a state of hostility. Like you're, you're always on the edge. People have to tiptoe around you because you're always on the edge. 
clamor, loud shout, slander, abuse of speech that tears people down, totally contrary to the very reason God gave us a tongue and speech in the first place. And malice, wickedness. Paul says, put these away. Remove them from your life. And in their place then, the second directive, replace destructive patterns with Christ-like love and grace. And here's where sometimes we need help from other people. We need people who love us enough in the spirit of Galatians 6.1 who say, I'm going to come into your life and I'm going to help you to see sinful life patterns that are destroying you and hurting the people around you. Because sometimes we, well, not sometimes, but we all have blind spots, right? And this is why my dream someday, if, if I live long enough, is that our entire church would be a church of people who love the Word of God and love people so much that you could just have conversations with one another and encourage and exhort and admonish as needed in the loving, gracious way so that we are all counseling one another in some way. That's my dream someday. Because that's the way it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be that if you see sinful life patterns in me, that you love me enough to pull me aside privately and say, Paul, I love you. And have you ever noticed this? Or I'm, I'm seeing a pattern that I'm not sure. Maybe my understanding is wrong. Maybe I don't have the full picture. But this is kind of what I'm seeing in you. Can you help me understand what's going on? Do you see how different that is? Then if someone just barges into your life and says, let me tell you the top ten things you do wrong. We won't have time to get to the top 100. I mean, this is, this is how biblical love is supposed to work. But again, you don't just put things off, but you put on. So putting off bitterness in all of its unsavory relatives, you replace it with what in verse 32? Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Forgiveness is the golden key that unlocks the prison of bitterness. There are many other things involved, but that's the golden key. Because when we're bitter, we're holding on to wrongs. And the very meaning of the word forgive is to let go or put away. So to forgive someone is to actively let go of the wrongs that they have committed against you. It is to put them away. It is choosing to remember them against them no longer. You may still continue to remember them because unfortunately, when it comes to the way that other people sin against us, our memory sometimes seems to be perfect. But the Old Testament says of God that he does not remember our sins, but he's very careful to say it this way. He remembers our sins against us no more. Against us. Key words. Not that he doesn't remember them anymore as if God had some kind of uh, uh, memory loss. But he chooses to not remember them against us anymore. And that's what forgiveness does. When, when we say to someone, I forgive you, what we are saying is, I make you the promise to never bring this up again and throw it in your face to make you feel miserable. And the fuel for this, Paul says, is in the last phrase in verse 32, as God in 
Christ forgave you. The fuel for forgiveness is to habitually reflect on how much you have been forgiven. As God in Christ forgave you is the new standard for Christian relationships or for Christians in relationships. Anything less than this reveals bondage to the old self, to the old man. It's as if Paul is coming to a climax here in 31 and 32 and saying to us that bitterness is the climactic trademark of the old self. But the climactic trademark of the new self is forgiveness. As God in Christ has forgiven you. So you have to maintain this posture of heart of forgiveness so that you are then ready and able to grant forgiveness to others. And here's where we come full circle in the story that I began telling you last week. It was one year after the fiasco with the dump in the country that we received news of the sudden death of the husband by heart attack. My wife and I don't remember how we learned of his death, but in the providence of God, we now just happened to live across the street from the funeral home where the service would be held. And we learned this the afternoon of. And we looked at each other and we knew immediately what we had to do. We knew immediately without even saying a word, we were walking across the street. We were going to that funeral. We were going to love that widow who had hurt our family so badly. And that's what we did. We walked across the street. We walked across the street because we knew we had to actively keep putting to death lingering anger. We walked across the street because we knew how much God had forgiven us. And we walked across the street to show love and grace to someone who had wronged us because that is what Christ does, right? So we visited with her for an hour Sometime in the months that followed, the phone rang. My wife and I were standing in our orange kitchen. <laughs> and, and it was the newly widowed woman. She thanked us for coming to her husband's funeral. And then she said this. It's just been in recent months that I've come to realize how badly we hurt your family and the great distress we caused you. And I was able to say to her genuinely from the heart, we forgive you. In fact, we forgave you already in our hearts, but it brings us such great joy to be able to tell you now that we forgive you. God had taught me so much through that. And I'm still learning. But just beware. Beware of how subtle bitterness can be. I didn't see it in my heart for a long time. But thankfully, God opened my eyes and helped me to see it. Perhaps the Lord has done that for you in this two-part series. I'm going to do something different this morning. Don't get too nervous looking at your watch. We're still going to sing. <laughs> I have to sing after this. Um, I'm going to do something uh, unusual today.
I'm going to give you homework. And it's between you and God as to whether or not you do the homework I give you. Okay, I'm not going to create a Google Drive and have you submit it. <laughs> I thought about it. Um, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to this week sometime make a list of the experiences that you believe you might still be bitter or angry about. It may just include hardships in this life. It may include people who hurt you very badly. But I just want you to ask the question, what am I harboring bitterness about? And then I want you to take that list and I want you to pray over it. I want you to confess any sins to God. And then I want you to pray for those who hurt you. As Jesus says, pray for your enemies, right? And then the third thing I want you to do is this. I want you to take your list and put it through your paper shredder. And if you don't have a paper shredder, then light a match to it on your grill. If you don't have a grill, then just tear it up into as many pieces as you can. Why? As a, as a visible way of saying, Lord, I am letting go. I am putting these away. And then you ask the Lord to cultivate a heart of love and grace because he will do that. What I'm, what I'm basically saying is this. Just face it, okay? Face the bitterness. Let the Holy Spirit change you. Father, help us. There's so much that we still need to learn about the inner workings of our heart and why it is we do the things we do and we think the things we think. I'm so grateful, Lord, for your abundant mercy. What word could possibly mean more to us this morning than mercy? You have shown us so much, for we have wronged you in infinite ways. And yet in Christ, you have fully and freely forgiven us because we've turned to you. And so God, would you just do this work in our hearts that we might become more filled with the love and grace and mercy of Christ toward one another. And then, Lord, that when we do encounter really bitter hardships in this life, that we won't turn bitter toward you. We won't get angry at you. Instead, we will grow in humbly submitting to you because we know you're sovereign and, and what you're doing in our life is always, always, always good. Give us eyes to see these things, we pray. In Jesus' name.